We had a few exits that did well for us in the hedge fund world, the private equity world. We partnered up with 20th Century Fox to make films. And we started off with Borat, and then we did Delaware's Prada 27 Dresses. We traded weather and precipitation around the globe. We had a very large library of music royalties. So what led you down that path? And what are the clues that maybe other people could read from that? There are about 1.2 billion people around the world with a mental health field. We're really looking at science-backed opportunities that can really solve the problem. We've looked at over a thousand opportunities. We invested in 24 companies, Fund One. Fund One is closed. It's generated a return on investment of about 1.9x. The greatest sin that, that we can make is not being true to ourselves and living up to our fullest potential. Welcome to Brick by Brick, episode 14 with Saad Shah, founding general partner of Noetic Capital. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Brick by Brick. Today, I'm joined by Saad Shah, who is the managing partner and founding partner of Noetic Capital. I believe you have about 150 million um, fund size and you invest in psychedelic companies, wellness companies, and every, anything in that sort of realm of, I don't know how you'd refer to it, consumer wellness. How would you describe it? I probably just butchered it. No, 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 thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Oli. It's, uh, it's always great to speak with you and I appreciate the, the time. Yeah, we, we are a fund, a venture fund that is focused on the central nervous system, um, technically speaking. Generically speaking, we're focused on mental health. And so for us, we're agnostic as to the modality. It could be drug development, drug discovery. It could be a medical device. It could be a medical technology. Um, it could be a digital diagnosis, digital therapeutics. AI-related infrastructure um, to support the ecosystem. But what we're set out to do is look at solving the various indications that fall on your mental health, and we're agnostic as to the modality. So we're not a psychedelic fund. We've done a lot in psychedelics, of course, um, drug development, drug discovery, but we're really looking at science-backed, strong IP-related opportunities that can really move the needle and solve the problem. Your thesis is... There's a huge problem with mental health, which is estimated to be a trillion a year in the US, right? And yeah. any tool to fix that problem is a good thing and you're the best. Yeah, I think that, you know, when, when we take a look at the scale of this problem, um, there are about 1.2 billion people around the world that are diagnosed with a mental health ailment. And we're not talking about folks that are just depressed because they had a, you know, a, a bad day or a week. We're talking about serious ailments like treatment, resistant depression, major depressive disorder, anxiety, PTSD, including traumatic brain injury, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, bipolar, ADD, ADHD. You know, uh, so the, it's a it's a pretty large spectrum that way. And but we've broken it down by each of these indications, and we're saying, okay, what's working for each indication in terms of what is the solution out there or the proposed solution? What's not working? And how big is this problem? And this problem is is the real epidemic in, in, in our opinion. It's 1.2 billion people around the world. Uh, to put it in perspective, there are about 460, 470 uh, million people that are uh, uh, currently diagnosed with or suffering from diabetes. There are about 100 million people around the world that are suffering through cancer, right? Um, but 1.2 billion people diagnosed. So the question is, how many people are actually undiagnosed? There are large spots of the planet where folks are not, you know, going to go in for a diagnosis, and um, it's a it's it's a massive problem. And to further highlight it, 
the Surgeon General in the U.S., Vivek, just did a mass tour of the U.S. and came back and said, wait a second, the real problem that he's identified, he's done a full paper on it, is loneliness. The extent to which loneliness is impacting not only just the U.S., but globally, is something that is now starting to be looked at. But it is a major problem, and it affects productivity and efficiency, and of course, the ripple effects are massive. Why is it that things like cancer and even COVID are in the highlight of everyone's minds, but by the numbers, it's not necessarily the biggest problem, whereas mental health, it's becoming more of a mainstream thing, but it's not headline news. Like why, why does it fly under the radar, do you think? That's a great question. I, a large, large part of this has to do with just our approach to mental health, right? And it's been in hushed tones for a very long period of time. So we didn't really speak about it before um, and we're not open about it. And I think what the pandemic did, pandemic was a very positive influence. I wanna be very careful with the statement, was a very positive influence in terms of bringing the subject of mental health to the forefront. And the reason is that, again, there were so many people that felt very, very lonely during that period of time and um, and that impacted them in ways that you know caused the onset of distinct you know mental health ailments to be to come about, but it was a massive massive disruptor for us. But that disruption allowed us to go. Wait a second, you know, the real eight hundred pound gorilla in the room is these are our mental health issues. Are the fact that we are all feeling a lot of people sorry are feeling a lot more depressed. They're feeling lonely, and. Again, lo- there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. Solitude is a choice, I keep saying. We choose to be in solitude. Loneliness is so you could be surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people um, and nobody you feel gets you and you feel very, very lonely as a result of it. So I think, um, I think that's why, but that's all changing now, Ali. Uh, we're finding that a lot more people are coming out and talking about their mental health issues. I can't tell you the, the number of CEOs and, and those that are in C-suite positions that are coming out and, and openly talking about the fact that they're dealing with bipolar or depression or whatnot. So, so that's one great step. And that was a large part because of the pandemic. And now we're getting excited about the fact that there's solutions um, that are actually there to cure these ailments as opposed to just treating the symptoms. And as a result, although we've gone through this very difficult period of time, we literally have the perfect fertile soil available to us now where we can plant the seeds with all, you know, by backing all these entrepreneurs, scientists, and researchers that are actually working on the most efficacious way to solve the problem once and for all in a profound way, certainly better than what we've had before. And, uh, and that's what's exciting about this industry. I was looking through your portfolio companies to try and spot a trend or see what you're sort of going for. And the question that jumped out to me was, how are they all going to, how do you envision them all coming together and coalescing in maybe like coming decades? Because there's a number of companies that do wearables. There's a number of companies that do drug development. We can't have 14 different watches on that all have a different purpose. Do you see a way that, they get united or is there a more holistic approach to solving these problems such as loneliness that can 
cover the work of four companies that you see might come in the future. Yeah, no, again, uh, uh, the right question to ask. Um, we've gone through up until maybe five or six years ago, um, you know, a period of time where the neuroscientists were not speaking to the pharmacologists and the neuroscientists and the pharmacologists were not speaking to the psychiatrists and those that are like in sort of the, on, you know, in the battlefield uh, dealing with patients that are, are, are uh, you know, are struggling with these ailments. And so for the first time, we're starting to get those key players onto the same table. And we're all looking at the same problem, but through a different prism, a different lens. And we're now in a position where because of this multidisciplinary approach, we can start to not only better understand the problem, but now come up with the right you know, treatments to solve and cure the problem. So that's one critical thing is that we're getting, um, it's a multidisciplinary approach. What we've done in our portfolio is very much along the same lines, which is to say, listen, we know that this is not going to be a one size fits all, which means that it's not that, okay, uh, you've got a mental health issue, ketamine for everybody, right? And no matter what your issue is, or which is, you know, a large part of how it kind of transpired in the initial stages, uh, you know, it's sort of like you have a, if you have a hammer in your hand, then everything looks like a nail. And the only thing that was out was ketamine. It was like, yep, solves all problems. Take this, you know, it's like penicillin for everything. And that's not true. We know that that's not the situation, right? And so what we're realizing is that this is all about precision medicine. And it's about taking a precision protocol to a better understanding the ailment that you're afflicted with and how you're dealing with it. And, and what are the different, you know, protocols that we can put together to solve that problem? So what we envision is actually a confluence of many different treatments that are going to go well together. So it's going to be potentially an aspect of, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy that includes talk therapy, along with potentially transcranial magnetic therapy, all along you're wearing the Apollo Neuro watch that allows you to be in a parasympathetic mode most of the time, while you're also engaging in distinct kinds of other protocols and, and modalities that are all going to, you know, help solve the problem. And better yet, going forward, that you're going to partake in, in a, you know, a, a few or, or many of these modalities as a preventative measure. Much like you go to a dentist for dental hygiene um, twice a year, maybe three times a year, in the same vein, we expect that you will be partaking in certain modalities under the right guidance, properly regulated as a preventative measure so that you don't have you know, mental decay or like you have dental decay. And, and so, sorry, to go back into the portfolio, what we've done is we don't know which modality is going to be as efficacious as the others. We're looking at, uh, you know, all these science-backed opportunities that that clearly, and, and that's the one key thing, it has to be science-backed, um, that have shown efficacy, that have shown profound results uh, through animal testing, in some cases, human trials and testing through anecdotal evidence, where we know that, okay, this is the right team that has put this together uh, they've got the right IP behind it. It is something that can be scalable and made available. It can be accessible by many people. And they're going down that path and they've done it right. So we're going to bet on that. I'm trying to get my thoughts in order so I can ask you all the questions I need to ask. Um, yeah, I suppose way. One, I, I really am interested in, I'll say them now so I don't forget, but one is I was going to ask how 
because these things are all relatively new, they're science-based, they're not necessarily proven. I was keen to understand what your investment criteria is and how you look for founders. Um, but maybe before we touch on that, do you think these are all technical solutions from what I've seen to, as you say, specific problems? Is there something that society is lacking as a whole culturally that would resolve a lot of these issues? For example, if people exercise more, obesity would reduce. So in terms of men overall mental health, whatever it may be, being not as healthy as it could be across society, what are things that you think need to change? Like, for example, it could be a four-day working week, taking a week off every year where you don't work. Is there any, any changes in outlook on society that you think would resolve or help to resolve these issues? Yeah, uh, um, that's a great point, Ollie, because, you know, when you look at the word heal, it really denotes being whole. Okay, and I don't want to get too woo-woo on you or your audience, <laughs> but to me, being whole means it's an element of adhering to mind, body, and soul. And so you can't ignore any one of those and just focus on, you know, one or two and ignore others, right? You, you've really got to look at it holistically. And once we're whole, we're healed. Um, so what is particularly interesting, again, is the fact that we've got multi-disciplines that are looking at the same problem. And so as much as you need the neuroscientist and you need the pharmacologist and the social worker and the psychiatrist and psychologist, clinical psychologist at the table, you also need the poet. You know, you also need the artist, you also need the humanities at the table, because that's what it's all about. It's understanding, you know, the humanities of what all the humanity is and how we can solve the problem. So that that's critical to the to, to the equation. Um, but there are distinct pathways that we're interested to explore a lot more because we, you know, feel that we need to investigate this way more. So inflammation, onset of inflammation, what causes things to inflame? You'll be surprised that, you know, there's a lot of talk now about trauma and thanks in large part because of the work that's been done by Kabor Matthew, who's kind of highlighted again, big T trauma, small T trauma and how that impacts us, but also the physiological response to trauma, which ultimately is inflammation and inflammation then causes other ailments to take place be that an autoimmune disorder or a mental health disorder or cancer for that matter. And there's enough anecdotal evidence to suggest that that is something we need to look at. But I think you'll be surprised to know that trauma is not something that's taught in med school. It's not, it's not actually brought up as a subject in med school or discussed or, 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 you know, students don't have any insight into it because it's not deemed as being important, which is flabbergasting. So that's an area we want to look at. We also know, of course, that, you know, a very large part of 80%, 85% of the serotonin is created in the gut. And so why wouldn't you look at gut microbiome and the link between the gut microbiome and mental health? If you are what you eat, then, you know, what you put into your body, into your system that fuels the system in the body is important. 25% of the body's energy is, is taken up by the brain and the brain's activity. That's a very large portion of it, right? And what fuels the brain? And so what are we putting into our systems and how that's affecting our gut microbiome um, is very important. So that's another aspect we need to look at. Um, your sleep pattern, it's circadian rhythm, okay? And ask anybody, you know, when they have a poor night's sleep and everything is just in disarray and everything sucks. 
so, and there are a few people that are okay with that. It depends on what their body needs, but we need to look at sleep patterns and mental health a lot more, right? And let alone getting to, you know, how much mental health may impact cancer, autoimmune diseases, other areas. We're just at the beginning stages of, of researching and looking into all these different areas. And, but it's exciting because now finally we can. And I think taking it back to psychedelics for a second, you know, um, obviously we do a lot more than psychedelics, but what psychedelics have done is they've provided us with a tool that allows us to essentially for the first time have a microscope to look at the problem, which we didn't have before. Or, you know, it's almost like you now finally have a torchlight and you're able to see what's in this dark room, but you didn't have that before. So, it, you know, it's all iterative. It's all been, uh, all these various disciplines have been lending a lot of knowledge and insight into the problem for us to better understand it so that we can better solve it. Yeah, interesting. My last, one of my last guests, Dylan Donato from Mindset Design Labs, that's one of his things. Like he sees psychedelics as tools to probe the infrastructure of the mind, is what he says, which I think is very cool. And I also love that your idea of um, seeing things as a whole, because I think that socially with everyone's ambition to be achieve X, Y, and Z because of TV, movies, social media, people are speeding up at the expense of eating well, sleeping well, and all these other things, which is then leading to bigger roadblocks down the line, which actually slow you down more in the long run. Would you oh, yeah. say that sort of yeah. lines? Yeah, look, we're, we're starting to now learn the impact that technology is having in the circuitry of our, of our, of our brain and functioning of our brain, right? Um, I still remember a time where we had the rotary phone. And if I put the rotary phone- What on earth phone, is that? <laughs> exactly. If I put the rotary phone in front of my 18-year-old daughter, she wouldn't know what to do with the holes. And, you know. and so, uh, and I'm sure you've seen those YouTube videos of, of kids trying to figure out how, how do you operate this thing. Um, so, but here's what the problem is in all seriousness. Because I grew up in an environment where we didn't have the cell phones and rotary phones, um, and I didn't have these gadgets that the phone that you do, um, I, I didn't. I wasn't hooked on to that phone in the way that this generation is now, right? And, and at a granular level, you have to understand that every time you get a ding or a bling or, you know, or whatnot on, on the phone, it triggers a dopamine high. You want to know, oh, who is it? What is it? I got to look at it. I got to check it out. I just posted something. Did I get likes? Did I not get likes? You know, um, friend of mine posted a picture. Do I say you look pretty? Do you not look pretty? All those things. These are, these are all facets that that are triggering a dopamine high. Now, if you're a child born into this ecosystem, and how many times have we seen toddlers with their iPads just to shut them up, and they're constantly on this thing? Their brain is being wired in a way that we haven't seen before because they are being programmed to respond to these dopamine triggers. And they're getting these dopamine highs all the time with the games that they're playing and what they're doing. And they're hooked onto their phone and they become addicted to it. We are actually, you know, uh, very much responsible for creating a generation that are addicted to that dopamine trigger. How is that any different from any other drug for that matter? We don't get it. Like we always think of addiction as a drug related thing. It's not. You could be addicted to work. You could be addicted to many things. I mean, spiritually speaking or philosophically speaking, you're doing all these things because you want to avoid facing yourself in the mirror. And that's where the real work lies at the end of the day. There's no psychedelic or anything else that's going to 
just take that away. You, they're gonna, these are tools that help you to better deal with yourself. But at the end of the day, you have to look at yourself in the mirror. So going back to the original thing again, I tend to go off track by being too woo-woo philosophical, is that, that, that we've got all these dopamine triggers and other technologies that are to really kind of activating that. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. So how do we deal with that? How do we find a way to kind of, A, make people aware, much like we, you know, in the early days, people used to smoke all the time, weren't really aware of its carcinogenic effects and, and, and causing cancer. But are we potentially in a position where we can identify a lot of what we're doing through technology as being, you know, cancerous or carcinogenic or affecting autoimmune issues and, and, and other ailments? We need to look into that. There's so much more to explore, but we are in a, in a very, very interesting period of time as a result of what technology has enabled us to do. I feel like if there was a word, like carcinogenic means this is likely to give you cancer. If there was a word for something that's likely to give you mental health problems, that would help a lot because you'd be able to characterize all these things. You could say the phones are this word, and then it would help spread the idea of what that would do for you. But at the moment, it just seems like because our experience of life is from within our brain, you don't notice the changes in your brain over like years because you just can't see it. Are there any startups you've seen that are looking to address that problem by way of tracking data in the brain or anything like that? Oh yeah, this, this phenomenal amount taking place, again, the same technology that's causing the problems is also allowing you to you know, uh, uh, figure a lot of things out. I mean. AI has been a huge enabler in a good way, of course, because you're now finally able to, from a drug discovery, drug development standpoint, um, you know, uh, put various permutations of these molecules together to see what the effect is going to be. And you can do that within a millisecond as opposed to, you know, putting them together in a petri dish and waiting three days and staring at it okay. and figuring out what's going to happen, right? So, you know, AI has enabled us to do that. But now we've got incredible technology that is using, you know, everything from um, every potential kind of contour in your face and, and the way you that changes when you get happy or sad, it's able to gauge, uh, you know, the strides that you take in when you walk and it's able to identify, wait a second, that's not Saad's regular stride. It's much slower, more deliberate. Uh, Saad is going into a depression and it's going to a bout of depression. It's able to identify that, right? Um, that, you know, uh, again, pupils of your eyes. I mean, there's so many other things, voice recognition and the difference and in, in the changes in intonation and the cadence of which, you know, you, uh, how you speak. All of that is now being factored and we can analyze all of that. And there are startups out there that are very much doing that. It's becoming a bit of a crowded space, right? But, you know, this technology has already been existing for a while. There's a company called Higher View uh, that, uh, you know, the Goldman Sachs of the world and the Blackstones and all the big banks and the Amazons and also are, are, are using Uber, um, you know, because they're able to go, okay, here's a technology that does the first interview. And um, you're just facing a computer screen. And it was incredible because there was a very high percentage of aggressive drivers that it was able to identify through that first interview just by, you know, how they were, the individual was speaking and how they were answering the questions without knowing anything about their driving history. So here you are, first interview, and it was able to identify over 80%, this is an aggressive driver. 
without asking that individual, are you an aggressive driver? Do you have driving infractions? Uh, just by virtue of, of reading all these all, all these features, right? So that's already been existing for a while. So we're we're much further along, and um, and so there, there are a lot of startups in this space. And yes, you know we we've got one that we're working on uh, in particular in our portfolio that we're tremendously excited about, and it's called Merlin Mind, and um, it is you know de facto um, probably the world's most sophisticated voice activated um, um, technology. Um, you know, without the hallucinations, right? It's highly efficacious, very effective. It doesn't have the hallucinations in the sense that you can actually rely on the information that this technology gives you, as opposed to, um, you know, just taking whatever it gives you. Chat GPT, the problem is only 60, 65% of the information is reliable. You don't know whether it's actually factual or not, and, or did Chat GPT mm. just make it up? Because you asked for book reports, it created a, you know, a whole bibliography just to kind of finish the project, but it was all fake. Well, yeah. that 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 is dangerous when it comes to relying on information. Um, so we like that technology sorry, just because, to, sorry, my just to, just to rewind, I, I do know what Merlin Mind is, but can you explain from the start what Merlin Mind is and the, the reason it exists? Yeah, Merlin Mind is a, is, is a technology that was created by a, a group of scientists that came from IBM Watson. They created Watson, right? The uh, uh, that, that competed uh, in Jeopardy. And um, so it's taking a large language model, it's utilizing very sophisticated natural language processing to, to understand in everyday terms, regardless of your accent, regardless of, of you know, uh, the cadence of your voice and, and intonations and so on, is able to take that information through voice activation and give you what it is that you need. And it, it is able to, to, to um, um, you know, do some very sophisticated um, um, work, right? It's able to um, um, uh, compare graphs and charts, um, identify what is the sixth most popular documentary on National Geographic, pull that up, um, you know, is able to read emails, answer emails, uh, reply to, to information and seek information and all of that without uh, you know, worrying about hallucination. So you, you know that this information is factual, it's true, it's been vetted um, and uh, and do it in a way where it is real time, uh, where you're not sort of speaking like, please find the most popular. No, you, you can speak normally and it, it provides you with all the information. So what they've right now directed that technology towards is to education, how it can be a real teaching, teaching assistant and a teacher's assistant. And it's an over 2000 public school classrooms in the in the UK. Okay. Mm. So um oh yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And 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 it's gaining a lot more traction, of course, but um but you can already start to think about, well, um, we can utilize that infrastructure in the White House, uh, in sort of secret rooms, in lawyers' offices, and of course with psychedelic assisted therapy. So now you've got a technology that can help with all the bottleneck that takes place right now with psychedelic assisted therapy, which is, yes, these molecules will go through and they'll be FDA approved, but how many psychedelic assisted therapists are there out there trained to be able to do that? And is there a way for technology to help? The most important aspect about what Merlin Mind does is that none of the information goes up to a cloud, Amazon, Apple, Google, whatnot. It's proprietary. It's all how does, yours. So it's you have access to the model 
and you train it on your data, which you house on your servers. You direct it to the server you want, you direct it exactly, but none of the information has to go up to any of these big platforms. So you don't have to worry about, oh, interesting. you know, yeah, that's, that's critical, right? Cause that's your data. That's your information. And, and that's, uh, and, and that's why there's so many platforms that are interested in this, be that in, in, you know, in, in psychiatrist offices to, you know, um, 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 you know, central intelligence agencies around the world and, and lawyers offices and, um, you know, keeping that information discreet is utmost importance. So that would be sold as a, as a software product. How does that, how do they go to market? Yeah. I don't want to go too much detail because they're, they're still in a large part of, you know, there there's, 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 um, there's stealth mode, but not entirely in stuff. Well, of course they've been out there, but there's a lot of great work that's being done there, but, but, but yes, it's, uh, it's not, it's something that is, should not be seen as a hardware device. It's very much something that is more along the lines of our software. There's a, 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 a there will be a small hardware component to it, but um, it's, it's, it's more of a software play. So it's, it's, it's a plug and play model. That sounds really cool. I think that education is one of the biggest problems that society has, especially the public school system. So I'm very, I'd be interested to see how it can speed up the information transfer from what we have to where it needs to be, which is in the minds of the kids who are in school today. Because I've learned some completely pointless things in a very pointless way at school. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, education is quite interesting. It's the old Prussian model that was designed, that was still following, that was designed to make you good foot soldiers and not question anything really, and uh, and be obedient. And uh, and that model's got to go. But it's, we're already seeing that change in some areas. Yeah. I actually think that the information is now out there on the internet. Part of the reason I started this podcast is because over the past six years, I've found some incredible resources that they've been in a random Substack or a tweet of someone from years ago, there's no place. So I'm trying to create, be an AI model and funnel information down to one thing. And today, I don't know if you've read it, but there was a, a, a long essay that came out about a month or two ago from Paul Graham, and it's titled How to Do Great Work. And it's about an hour's read, but it's basically fundamentally, how do you find what to work on, um, work on it to the best of your ability, be available to change or whatever. And basically find something that's super interesting to you that you can work on for a long time and make good work. So my question to you, as I was researching you and having read that is, sorry, this is a very long-winded question, but how you come from a finance background, what was the trigger point that you decided to move in this direction? Because you, in my opinion, you clearly do great work. You run a huge fund. So what led you down that path? And what are the clues that maybe other people could read from that? Yeah. Um, for me, this is very personal. For, for, and yes, my background has been in, in finance and hedge funds and private equity um, um, my entire career. Um, and... Uh, but my spare time, uh, I have a bit of a voracious appetite to read. I was, I've always been very, very interested in what is it that quintessentially makes us human? And 
that study of humanity, but the study of the intellect um, and all aspects of the intellect uh, is is what is you know the definition of the word noetic, uh, and which is why you know we, we named ourselves Noetic Fund is has been a very long-standing passion of mine. So um, I'll try to make a long story short, but um, spend a lot of time on airplanes, uh, flying very long distances and had time to read and was typically flying with my business partner and the other co-founder of, of Noetic Warm Right. And on our flights, we were very much interested in what um, and fascinated by what ancient cultures, ancient tribes, ancient schools of thought um, had to say about life, about consciousness, about humanity, about what makes us tick and who we are. Um, and there were some just profound learnings from that, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, we've been toggling, uh, you know, um, since the beginning of humanity between the left brain and the right brain is the work of Ian McGilchrist in a fantastic book called The Master and the Emissary. And the master and the emissary being the right brain and the left brain have been toggling back and forth, you know, over time. And we're at a point in time right now where very much the left brain is the master and the right brain is the emissary. So left brain is very analytical. It's all about numbers. It's about logic. Whereas the right brain is more abstract. It's more holistic. It's sort of, you know, looking at, at the big picture. And, um, uh, and so how that's been toggling back and forth. So that was interesting. But then again, the role that plant medicine and, you know, uh, plants that have a psychotropic element to them, the role that they played across societies, across cultures, and across time was particularly fascinating because they come up a lot. When you look at Egyptian hieroglyphics and Egyptian carvings, you'll often see the blue orchid flower come up a lot. Why do they keep bringing that up? In Mesopotamia and Middle East, it was the Syrian root. In the Persian Empire, the Homa played a very important role. In Siberia and, you know, in that, in that, part of the world, it was the Amanita muscaria, which is the red mushroom with the yellow, with the white dots on it, right? Um, in India, it was the Soma. That was the first real talk about uh, a, you know, psychotropic um, substance. Many feel that it's a mushroom, it's a plant we don't definitively know yet, but we know that it provided things like immortality. In the first depiction of any any written element in Western literature really came from the Epic of Gilgamesh written on Sumerian tablets. It's a fantastic story of, of, of Gilgamesh and Enkidu and so on. And that talks about a plant that grows at the bottom of the river and gives you immortality. Again, there's so many, and, and it's across cultures. I mean, of course, Australia, there's, there's, there's a, a large mention of it. In, in Asia uh, itself, of course, large mention of it. So what were they doing? Why were they being used? What was the role? Why was it that in most cases, these plants were reserved for nobility and for the powers to be and not shared with others? What were they trying to ascertain? What were they trying to get at, right? Ergot, which is a fungus that grows on wheat that the, you know, uh, um, the Greeks partook in and the initiates uh, partook in to, to, you know, get downloads of information, right? Um, and of course, ayahuasca has been in, the Amazon and the Amazon basin for thousands of years and the role that it played. But there's so many other plants that were there that were used by way of either snuff or, or other modalities that they, that they um, uh, use as a delivery mechanism that gave them that insight. In Africa and Gabon, West Africa particularly, it's Ibogaine. So again, it just keeps appearing 
we know that it's psychotropic and, and and that was fascinating to me and when i went down that pathway i realized wow um, there, there's also a lot of research done with regards to how these psychotropic plants and the molecules within them are interacting with the receptors uh, uh, and, and uh, in, in the way that they are as agonists or antagonists and the results that they're bringing about. So it's just a passion. At the time, we had no idea that this was going to be an industry or there was something to go on with it. We went on our way to you know, build the businesses that we did in the hedge fund world, the private equity world. We had a few exits that you know uh, did well for us, and so when it came time to focus on, uh, you know, an area uh, that was a personal passion of ours, and we started to see a market develop, and we saw what Atai was doing and what Compass was doing and others, we started to investigate and look at it more and more. And in early 2020, we decided that we we're going to put our own money to work, and that belonging to family and friends. And others started to find out and said, "What are you doing?" And we said, "Well, we're investing in this area." And they looked, "Can we invest with you?" and that was the beginning of Noetic. We launched Noetic in February of 2020, a month before the pandemic. The fund launched in March of 2020. And, um, and we were excited about putting our own capital to work. And that's really the genesis of Noetic. It just came from a, an interest and a passion in the space. It's amazing. That is exactly, it goes in line with the framework of, you can't plan your life out. You can just pursue your curiosity and then see where it leads you. So you had your skills and experience from classic finance industry, and then you just explored your passion because it felt like the right thing to do. And then those things came together. Is that how you'd see it? Oh, no, uh, Oli, I think that everything I've done in my life for the last 51 years has led me to this very point. I'm a firm believer. I mean, prior to all this, I spent a lot of time studying esoteric you know, philosophies and schools of thought. I was trying to find an answer as to, well, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose? Uh, what Have you found difference... one? <laughs> I, uh, um, uh, yes, I'll dovetail this into what I think is, is the key element, which is that, you know, we just had 4th of July in the U.S. and there was a lot of talk about, you know, the pursuit of happiness, pursuit of happiness. And of course, there are a lot of people that are not happy. And, uh, you know, it occurred to me that it's never been about the pursuit of happiness. And that's just such bullshit, in my opinion. If I can say that, can I say that? Am I able to say bullshit? Of course. Uh, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it is and has always been about finding the happiness in the pursuit. And that's what it is. Interesting. Because ultimately arriving at one, I don't think there's just one answer, but ultimately arriving at an answer will be so disappointing to so many. So in some ways, I hope that we, um, uh, you know, as the proverbial dog that, that you know, uh, latches onto the bumper, we don't ever do that. We never catch, we never get to catch the bus, right? And that we're always in pursuit of it. But in that pursuit, we need to find happiness. And I think that's a core part of it. And it's that along with realizations that there are three major components that you need to survive and live. There's food, there's shelter, and the third one that we forget about, which is so important to the equation, is companionship. We need companionship as social animals. And a large part of our, I think all our uh, um, mental health issues, all our stresses, 
really boil down to that one aspect, which is it's always driven by some relationship issue or it's, you know, coming about because of a relationship factor. And this is just old school Adlerian psychology that we often forget about. But, um, but that is a core component of how healthy we, you know, can be or are. And uh, it's, it's about dealing with those relationships. I don't know if I answered so your questions. No, no, you did. You did. That was interesting. I'm, I now want to bring it from the abstract into yeah. reality through your experiences. You're managing partner of a huge fund in a nascent industry. I'm sure that comes with a whole load of stresses and trials and tribulations. And you probably have to sacrifice a lot of your time to make sure that is successful. So how do you, what does it look like in your life to balance ambition and progress and moving forward with relationships, which might be, mean like switching off from work for a weekend or having a drink or whatever it may be that is the antithesis to progress? How do you balance the two and how do you think people should approach that? Yeah, that's a, so let me start by first saying that, you know, it's, we're primarily driven by the fact that this epidemic is getting worse. It's not getting any better because of all the reasons I mentioned before. And my gauge for that is really looking at the lives of my two daughters, age 23 and 18, Rana and Mia. And, you know, they've gone through the pandemic, of course, at a period of time where they should have been having a great experience in high school or university, but they didn't have that. There's all these other stresses this whole world has become so much more competitive. The need to achieve has gone up. You're looking at so many others that are constantly, you know, posting or talking about how great and wonderful and successful they are and happy they are. And we all know that that's all, that's all crap. I, I apologize for the dings. Um, uh, and, and so when I take a look at them and their ecosystem, you know, um, they know five individuals amongst them um, that have committed suicide. And they committed suicide, pretty much there was a common sort of theme across that, which was that there was uh, too much pressure, too much stress, and the need to achieve was too overwhelming, and they weren't able to meet those needs, and, and they took their lives. I only know one individual, you know, that I was very friendly with, a good friend of mine that committed suicide, but, but they're only 23 and 18 at, to this point in time, and over the last five to seven years, they've known five individuals. There's something so wrong with that picture, right? And, and so... That's a big motivating factor for me to try and see what it is that we can do to just, you know, at least make a dent uh, in, 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 you know, uh, in, in this industry by identifying those individuals, researchers, scientists, entrepreneurs that can actually start to make the situation a bit better, a bit more tolerable uh, um, and, and at least stop it from, from escalating, right? Um, so that's a driving factor, but it wouldn't be a driving factor if we actually didn't see so many modalities that are as efficacious as they are. And there is incredible amount of promise. So that's a good thing. We are dealing with an industry that is very emotionally driven, especially when you start talking about psychedelics, because psychedelics are, um, are probably the most uh, uh, profound example of precision medicine there's out there meaning that you can have 50,000 people take the exact same dosage of 
of DMT and at the exact same time, and they'll have 50,000 different experiences. So all our experiences are like a snowflake. And what we don't talk about enough, which we need to as part of the education process, is the harm that can be done if you do this incorrectly and if you approach it in, in an incorrect manner. And there isn't enough dialogue about that. I feel that there's too much press around, you know, all the great benefits of what psychedelics can bring to the table. But, but we're, we're ignoring the harm that it can do if you don't do it right. And there's so many different factors that, that come into that equation, right? So, um, so this is a tricky industry to be in because it's so emotional. Everybody's very much driven because of a personal experience that they had and, and they feel that they are, have been guided or told by some higher power to make a big difference and change others. And I think they missed the memo. I think what was important is that they needed to, to, to understand that what they need to change or work on is themselves. And if we all did that independently, all of society would be better for it. But that work is not easy. It's very difficult. And you need help with that work. And so it's a lot more of a complex issue than people, you know, kind of are led to believe. It is not a panacea. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's simply a tool, uh, but the work still needs to be done, and, and that's the big part of it. So how do you educate people on how complicated the problem is? Also, in a world where people don't want to – people make things like the iPhone and they take away every single blocker there is. So how do you motivate people to – overcome difficulty in pursuit of fixing themselves and getting better. It's the most difficult thing, right? Aldous Huxley, you know, wrote about it in one of his books of passages that, you know, we toil away in our everyday lives so that we can avoid ourselves. Um, and facing yourself in the mirror is probably the most difficult thing you can do. Um, and, and so, and some people need a lot of help with that because of the traumas that they faced. Um, in life. So all we're trying to do is identify those tools that can help us minimize the problem uh, um, in a way where it, you, don't, you don't see it as an 800-pound gorilla in the room anymore. It's now shrunk to the size of, you know, um, mini-me or something. And now you're like, oh, I, I, can, I can deal with that. I can, I can at least walk around it and see it and, and, and you know, um, um, examine this problem from many different uh, points of view and vantage points and, and help solve it. But you don't have to be afraid of that problem anymore. The way to do this is just by doing more of these talks. It's not just me, but everybody just being aware of what is required. There needs to be a lot more education out there. But we need to listen to different disciplines about it. This is not a problem that you're just going to go to the neuroscientists and go, what's the problem? Explain this to me. No. This is where I say that you really need to bring in the artist. You need to bring in you know, the, the, the poet, you need to bring in, you know, um, those uh, schools of thought to better understand why we have a broken heart. Uh, why are we feeling so much grief? Um, you know, why are we so depressed? What does that actually mean? Right? Why am I not eating anymore? Um, so I think, you know, first part of it is to identify and realize that you do need to bring those other disciplines in. And, 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 you know, think outside the box in terms of not only better understanding the problem, but how to solve it. And, and it's just through dialogue. It's through more dialogue, more awareness, uh, where, we can, where we can really, you know, address the problem. Can you give an example of a time when you've 
personally learned something about yourself, which has helped you to overcome an obstacle or just achieve higher levels of things that you weren't able to before? Um, yeah, I mean, this is a constant, constant, constant exercise, right? And I think that, you know, one that comes to mind immediately is, is an event that happened when I was 15 and a half years old. I grew up in Berlin, Germany. Um, my father was posted there as a diplomat. I went to high school in Berlin, but we used to live in East Berlin. This is before the wall came down. Um, and, uh, but my siblings and I would study in West Berlin. I went to the German-American school there. So it would take me about an hour and a half to get to school um, from my house in East Berlin to the school in West Berlin. And on one of those occasions, as I'd crossed the border, and as diplomats, we were allowed to cross the border, I ran across the border because I was late for school. I was always late. Um, and in this one occasion, uh, when I ran, I ran hard, and they thought I was trying to escape. So the towers you know, cocked their guns and uh, told me to stop twice they said halt and i don't think they would have said it a third time and i realized what i had done and it was one of those major events in my life where you know they yelled at me screamed and said why are you running you're not allowed to cross the border today go back home and i walked all the way back home i didn't go to school but throughout that walk back i was thinking i could have died today right and and so what's the meaning what's the purpose and 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 what is my role in all of this and that was the first time where i started to get a glimpse of the fact that that you know, we 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 tend to have a very solipsistic view of ourselves. You know, it's all about us, and everything else revolves around us. Um, and when you start to have a glimpse of the fact that you're part of something much greater, and there's a bigger picture, and you know, that can come through many different modalities. It can come through meditation, or a stressful event like I had or, you know, through breath work or through psychedelics or through, you know, years of therapy. Um, when you come to that realization that, you know, while you may be part of something much greater and bigger than yourself, then all of a sudden the dynamics of, you know, how you think about life changes. Your perception and view of death changes. Um, your, uh, you know, your sense of loneliness tends to go away, right? There's, there's a lot of very interesting things that happen uh, where you learn about yourself and you're able to essentially observe yourself, which is just step away from yourself to observe your behavior and activity without judging. And that's a practice. That's a skill that needs to be refined. And it takes years to refine an ability to, as I'm talking to you right now, how do I step away and watch myself do this uh, without judging and just be aware of all the factors and components that are going into doing what I'm doing. Um, and if we can each practice that, uh, I think that that is a profound game changer. So for me, it was that catalytic event um, or that catalyst that, that really kind of um, set things in motion that have led me to this point in time now today. Fascinating. It's amazing. It's like the butterfly effect. That seemingly small thing can lead to such a huge change. Because every, all your work now is, it, that's the common theme. It's around like, our consciousness and what it means to be human and what what it is yeah and and i think that the key thing for me is realizing that i've been wearing masks my entire life right you you you're born into this world you're given a name you're told what religion you belong to what community you belong to what family you belong to what neighborhood you belong to blah 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 
and then the rest of your life you're defending that. And at some point you realize I'm so much more than all of that. And I'm, you know, and and it's it's not just confined to that. And we're all a part of this this whole and what that means. And that changes the way you think about things. And so it's about getting rid of those masks at some point. At some point you kind of realize, wait a second, I'm wearing too many masks. I'm this way with my with my daughters, I'm this way with my wife, I'm this way with my coworkers, I'm this way with my friends, and this, you know, and, and you're putting on different masks until you realize, wait a second, you're being you're not being authentic. You're not being true to yourself. And I think that's the greatest sin that that we can make is not being true to ourselves and living up to our fullest potential. There's no greater sin than that. For me, that's the meaning of life, to self-actualize, to start with a block of stone, chip away and find out who you are and who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. And if you don't make it, then you've not spent your life properly. Yeah. What do you think, what, is, what, what meaning do you attribute to life? Things you've done all this research and work and thinking, I'm very curious to see like, what you think of that. You know, it changes uh, on a weekly basis, uh, <laughs> but it changes in the sense that it evolves. Like my thinking has evolved around this, right? So, I, I, at the point that I am right now in life, and what I've sort of, you know, been able to piece together, I think that we, as a whole, as consciousness, are part of consciousness. I think there's a big question in quantum physics: is you know, the consciousness question, what came first? And um, so I don't think that everything is just simply a chemical imbalance in your brain. Um, there's still a lot of debate about whether, you know, what we have is everything is confined to what's happening in the brain. Or the other side of the equation is, is the brain potentially a tuning fork and it's tuning into different frequencies? Um, or is the answer somewhere in the middle? For me, you know, philosophically speaking, I feel that we are part of consciousness and we're evolving. And we're collectively evolving, consciousness is evolving, and it's spiraling, you know, upwards, it's ascending. But that requires us to, you know, um, look back at, you know, ourselves, see what we've done, learn from our mistakes, and continue. So I don't feel this. There's anything, uh, uh, you know, that that we typically understand, you know, death to be. I don't think there is anything as a finality. I think we're constantly evolving. We're constantly morphing. We're constantly growing. And all these experiences are very important to that equation. We're all playing a role in that. But this game never stops. We never, ever stop. It will always go on. It will never end. So if you think that there's such thing as a finality or death, I feel, based on what I understand so far and everything that I've read into and experienced personally too, is that is that is the fact that you know, this, this never ends. It keeps going. And to some people, that's a daunting idea. Like, wow, this never, wait, wait, wait. Never what do you, what do you mean, <laughs> personally, or do you think like reincarnation? What, what do you mean by that? In many different forms, but whether it is reincarnation or it's you know that energy is transferred into a different modality, we don't know. We don't. Know, I don't know the answer to that question. But I don't think that that energy ever dies. It doesn't. From a quantum mm. physics perspective, also energy just doesn't die; it transfers, right? So there, there is no death. Death. There's no finality. It's, it, 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 that energy transfers, and it goes into a different form, a different modality. I don't know. It can be one of three million one things, but 
it's all part and parcel of an effort to, for all of consciousness to continue to evolve. There's a podcast on Tim Ferriss with David Deutsch. I think you'd love it. I was sent it to you after. It's about um, how knowledge evolves and things like that. Yeah. Um, no, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to. I, I, th- I yeah. think that, that, yeah, I would love to. I'd love to uh, listen to that. Thank you. Okay. I could talk to you all day about consciousness and all of those things, but I'm also yep. trying to uncover the building blocks of business and things like that so yep. that other people can see yeah. how you do things. And as someone yeah. who's founded a venture capital firm, tell me, like I'm five, what are the steps to a VC fund? What makes that fund up? How do you build it? How do you market it? How do you raise money? Yeah, look, uh, you know, um, I've spent, uh, you know, Warren Wright, who's, who's the other co-founder of Noetic and I, we worked together for close to 20 years. And we've spent our entire career in investment management. And so what we did um, really well was to identify strategies that were very early in their life cycle that were uncorrelated to the markets that had the potential for a great amount of alpha, which is the ability to generate a return greater than what the market is delivering it for a given point of risk and um, had virtually zero beta. But this alpha was fleeting. It's not always there. Of course, otherwise everybody would find a way to identify alpha. And so it's identifying alpha and identifying how there is a certain timing or certain strategies to come into play and then how to size those strategies within a portfolio, how to time it and so on. So what we did do uh, a great job in particular, Warren and through his efforts was to identify strategies early on in the life cycle that we seeded that didn't exist really before. And those strategies included amongst others, commercial litigation finance, reinsurance. You know, we traded weather and precipitation around the globe. Um, we had a very large library of, of music royalty, a large library of music assets that every time they played at a hair salon or a DJ, played it on a radio station, you would get a royalty from. Um, we were involved in 77 films. We, we partnered up with 20th Century Fox to make 27 films, uh, 77 films, sorry. Um, the first one, you know, I think we started off with Borat and then we did, you know, Devil Wears Prada, 27 Dresses. That was through an entity called Dune Entertainment. Um, we did Avatar. We're identifying these sort of strategies where, it, you know, it doesn't matter whether the markets are up and down, you're going to go see a film that you want to see because you're, you want to see that film, right? And in yeah. fact, you may be, you know, more eager to go watch a film as opposed to spending $100, $200, $300 on concert tickets when markets and times are tough. So it's about identifying those opportunities that were uncorrelated to the market. With film financing, you have to do it as a slate financing, which is that over a course of time, and without you know this element of cherry picking that studios often do, which is to say, hey, uh, I need money for Avatar 1 because I don't know how that's going to go. But if that does really well, I don't need money for Avatar 2. Thank you very much. So, so certain things you need to take out of the equation when it comes to film financing. And it's about you know putting in equity that matches what the producer is putting in, and then the rest you get debt financed. Um, but what's important is where you are in the capital stack and in the waterfall and how you get paid out. But again, the idea being is that, okay, films are one of those things where there'll always be a market for it. And likely when markets are down, there'll be more of a market for it. We did the same thing in pharmaceutical royalties, right? We did the same thing in very complex credit trades and commodity trades. 
So when it comes to CNS, central nervous system, and what we're doing in mental health, four years ago when we started Noetic, was to look at all the telltale signs of an emerging industry, of a new strategy that was coming together in a way where we were like, wait a second, we've seen this movie before, no pun intended. And, and so we've, we've got to get into this, we've got to identify, and, and this is right along our, 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 you know, right up our alley. This is what we're interested in. And, and we feel that this is going to get very, very exciting for the following reasons. And those reasons are that this epidemic is getting worse. There's a massive need for it. But from the solution standpoint, we've learned so much from oncology uh, and about precision medicine from oncology, from cancer research that, that can be transferred here and that we can learn from. We have, we have the perfect bedrock of opportunities because a lot of these academic institutions around the world have been putting a lot of funding and work into uh, many different modalities that are showing a lot of efficacy. We have anecdotal evidence and what we've learned from, from psychedelics and these plant medicines that we can now apply human engineering to, to come up with more efficacious solutions to the problem, right? And then of course, AI has done a brilliant, brilliant job of helping us advance uh, you know, the research and development aspect of it and discovery aspect of it to really identify you know, what, what will work versus what will you know, likely not. And so you, that we identified early on and, and that's how we got into it. So it's an element of understanding that there's a need, understanding that what currently works maybe is not working best, identifying a, um, an audience that's not or a market that's not being catered to in any way, shape, or form, and catering to that. But then, more importantly, is building the team. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I may consider myself a citizen scientist. Maybe I can play one on TV, but it's not my background. My background is investment management. But we've hired and brought on a team that understands distinct aspects of what we need to succeed through, right? We brought on very strong qualities and, 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 and experience and intellect when it comes to understanding intellectual property, both from a drafting perspective and, uh, and also from understanding of how those uh, patents are put together. We've got uh, folks on board that, of course, understand the science and are, are well ingrained in, in the latest research that's going on in, in neuroscience and in pharmacology. We have others that understand how to take these uh, different you know, drug development programs through FDA compliance and whatnot others that understand technology a lot better. So it's about building the right ecosystem and the right team that you, know, that you can use to, again, identify those opportunities that are the most compelling, that can actually do something about solving the problem. That's what requires in a VC. The other thing is hubris. The one factor that I've seen that has killed most businesses is hubris. I think it's probably the, the most leading category of, of business killers. Okay, is um, not being self-aware enough as a leader to know that okay, uh, there are areas that I don't know anything about, and um, and also uh, uh, I cannot get overconfident, and also I've made a lot of mistakes and I recognize that I've made those mistakes. So what have I learned from it? And so those are aspects that are very important to the equation that we take into account too. Um, so, you know, um, we don't talk enough about failures either. I think it's important for us to, as, as entrepreneurs, as, as uh, you know, uh, business people to really learn from mistakes. And one of the things my business partner does really well is he's got a, 
you know, um, I, I don't want to say it's an encyclopedia, but he's got a, a notebook of all the mistakes that, that, you know, he's made, we've made in our careers over time in identifying opportunities or in the business world where we actually make a note of it and say, mistake, here's a mistake we made, here's a mistake we made, right? And, um, and that's important because if you're not learning from those mistakes, then you certainly haven't learned anything from history and, and that just is insanity. What a fascinating way to deal with mistakes. Have you ever made the same mistake again? Oh, yeah. It's like 100 pages back. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I have made no... the same mistake again. And, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, so yes, uh, you know, an idiot is somebody that makes the same mistakes over and over again, uh, but doesn't even realize that they're making the mistake, right? And and I'm a half an idiot because uh, I may make the same mistake over again, but at least I realize that is a mistake I'm making. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, they... It's obviously to minimize that, but you know, um, uh, sure, of course, I've made the same mistake. I have to come back to film financing. I've never even heard of that category. To oh, really? No, it's, it's a bit. Yeah, it's big. It's pretty big now. Really? Oh yeah, so, it's pretty big now. But the, the key thing is that a lot of people, you know, get into that area in that field, um, and they get caught up with small producers that want external capital, but they cherry pick what they need that external capital for. Because they know that the short bets, they don't need extra money for. Why, why share the equity and, and share what would be in you know, a participation in that with others? And so that's, you know, those are the kinds of formulas where a lot of people get hurt in the space. Okay. Typically, film financing has really been seen as a vanity play by many, which is that they want their name as the executive producer and they want their name in lights. Um, and and th that's the wrong way to go about it. When you take a look at it, at from a slate perspective, which is that, hey, I, I believe in the theme that requires time to play out, but there's no cherry picking. It's like everything you're doing, we're going to help with. Then you start to see the potential for that to play out as a theme and as a thesis that that is very, very lucrative. And for some people, it's been incredibly lucrative. We've done it the right way. So do you judge it film by film or do you just like VC style, make 20 investments and one of them will pay for the other 19. Well, what do you, you say? Know, like, I like the story of that one. I like the producer on that one. Yeah, you, it, it, we are not experts when we did it at identifying what's going to be a hit versus what's not going to be a hit. So that's why you partnered up with a team that is better at doing that. But in this case, in this scenario, it wasn't even about that. It was that, okay, you've got a large studio that is well known for um, um, uh, making movies on budget, not going over budget, and understood how that machine operates. And so they're going to lay out a slate of films that they want to make. And you have to buy into that partner knowing what they're doing. And so that's their department. Your view is, you know, does that partner or does that studio really check out? Are they are they really good at what they do? And if they are, and you come to an agreement about how you share the risk on each film and um, also the participation in the upside, then it becomes a very becomes a very viable solution and a very viable investment theme. Can I ask a really? Uh, I'm just gonna ask it. <laughs> how much money did Avatar make? For your investment avatar uh well I, I i can't speak to that i can't speak to what okay. it made because it's all proprietary but i mean avatar cost over three 
I think Avatar, uh, you know, costs a lot of money. Avatar, um, Avatar, you know, costs about three hundred eighty-seven million or three hundred ninety million, a billion. My apologies. Um, sorry, three hundred ninety million. My apologies to 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 make. So it was an expensive endeavor. Three hundred ninety million is what it cost for Avatar to to, to be made. Uh, the budget was much less than that, uh, um, but it ended up being, you know, uh, but but it obviously it you know it 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 did it did very very well. Um, very, Whose very job well. is it when it goes over budget to find more budget? Is that James Cameron's job? Um, um, no, it, it's 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 John it's John Landau who's his producer. Uh, right oh, to okay. you know, so it's producer's job to kind of find the capital for it and and to make sure that things are all on budget and they're they're moving mm -hmm. the way they do. So that was always John Landau's job. But again, Avatar in the box office alone did almost three billion in sales, right? Globally. Can I? I want to try and get some sort of number out of you because I feel like you you must have a count. How much? How much returns have you made for your investors? If you have to guess over the last few decades. Oh, I, 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 that's a tricky question, Oli, because that track record now belongs to Carlisle because we sold our business to Carlisle and so on. But I can tell you what we've done at Noetic. We launched Noetic four years ago. We launched Fund One. We've looked at over a thousand opportunities. We invested in 24 companies, 23 to 24 companies in Fund One. Fund One is closed. Um, as a fund, um, it's generated um, over 35% IRR, gross IRR, okay? Um, and about, a, you know, a, a return on investment of about 1.9x um, since March of 2020. But the first investor in, because the way that Fund One was structured, we set a NAV and everybody came in at a new net asset value number at the end of each month. So the first investor that put their money into Fund One has seen their capital grow by over 400%. Gross, gross of of uh, carry, but net of management fees, but gross of I assume carry. So they're very so happy. That, yeah, they're very happy. And, <laughs> and um, you know, we, we, we're, we're looking to continue down that path. We've got some uh, major catalysts in the portfolio that will take place that will really help us well uh, going forward. But the idea again is that I'd like investors to understand that when it comes to mental health, wellness, when it comes to what's happening in CNS, it's not just about, oh, that's nice. We're going to, you know, these guys are going to try and solve some problems and that's very nice and look at it the way you typically look at impact investing, which has been there, there, you know, we'll put some money towards that, but, uh, we are not expecting great returns. That's not happening. You're at the beginning stages of a move in an industry where you're going to see profound growth. We all know that a lot of that growth comes early on. And for investors, we've already shown how it's been a phenomenal return on investment capital, while at the same time trying to appeal to investors and say, listen, there's also a real profound return on human capital if we do this right. Remarkable. What's your minimum check size? For non-US investors, um, we're, we're, we're going with 250,000 US. And okay. we, we're looking to close in a couple of months time, I think. 
Amazing. For fun too, that is. Now we're on fun okay. too. Amazing. The last thing I wanted to ask you is just tying all of that together. You're very um, systematic in your thoughts. Do you Sorry? have a frame? Do you have like frameworks or principles or, or like ways that you try and put your thinking into a box? How do, how do you come to these ideas? Even the way you talk about films, it's very like, this is a film, you need to have X, Y, Z, and then this goes in and that comes out. Yeah, you know, I, I, I started, you know, I started off uh, early days at the World Bank of Canada. I was in investment banking and real estate markets and, and uh, ultimately moved on to the trading floor because I was very interested in how to manage risk or trade derivatives, trade options. And what I learned early on was that, you know, you really have to be really good at identifying the signal from the noise. And there's a hell of a lot of noise. And today, even more so, what we have is just tremendous amount of noise. And when you take a look at some of the most successful investors out there, like Warren Buffett, there's a reason why he's sitting in Omaha, Nebraska, and not in, in New York City. And, uh, and it's about saying, okay, here are the three key criteria or piece of information that are necessary for uh, me to determine whether this is an opportunity or not. And it's identifying those key metrics um, and just sticking to your guns in terms of being good at being disciplined about not getting caught up in the noise and just adhering to the signals and identifying those signals. So I think it's a, you know, a large part of it is, is really that. But I have to say that you know, uh, um, there are other aspects and factors that play in um, that, that, um, you know, that are what I would call the X factor. And, and it's about conviction. It's about having a thesis that, you know, um, you would like to see play out, but you're also self-aware to know that, okay, if, it, if certain metrics aren't met, that it's probably a thesis that's not going to play out. It's a lot about gut instinct and, and, and so on. There are other factors that I think we don't pay enough homage to um, that's important. And finally, I'll say a large part of it is just luck and timing. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think that's a great way yeah, to Yeah, it's end. a pleasure. Great. Very well. I, I uh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your questions and your interest and uh, appreciate you helping with, you know, kind of getting the knowledge out there and the information out there so that, um, you know, we can all be better. For well, I appreciate that.